was on May the 30th, 1972, that Watchman Nee, a Christian church leader and Christian teacher who worked in China during the 20th century, died in prison. In 1922, when he was only 19 years old, he initiated church meetings in the Fujian province that may be considered the beginning of local churches. During his 30 years of ministry, Ni published many books expounding the Bible and established churches throughout China, even holding conferences to train Bible students and church leaders. My friend David Poling said that when he was going into China, starting 44 years ago, it was not uncommon to find small churches that had been started by Watchman Nee spread throughout that country. Watchman Nee, though, would soon learn of the clashing of kingdoms. Following the communist revolution, Nee was persecuted, and on April 10th, 1952, one year to the day before I was born, Watchman Nee was arrested in Shanghai, and in terms of the Chinese government at that time, they said Nee was also re-educated. On June the 21st, 1956, he appeared before the high court where it was announced that he had been excommunicated by the elders of his church in Shanghai, which wasn't really his church. That was the official government church. Found guilty. And Nee would never again leave prison. One year before his death in 72, his wife Charity died due to an accident and Nee wasn't even allowed to attend her funeral. In fact, Nee was scheduled for release in 1967, but he was detained in prison, not released, until his death May the 30th of 1972. No announcement. His body was cremated before the family was even told of his passing. I think it's obvious why. A grandniece of Watchman tells us that before his departure, he left a piece of paper under his pillow, which had several lines of big words written in a shaking hand. He wanted to testify to the truth which he had held even until his death and his lifelong experience. Nee, at one time, had written, the greatest negative in the universe is the cross. For with it, God wiped out or erased everything that was not of himself. You know, at first, when I first read that, I started thinking, negative. And then I read it and sat and thought about it. It was God's big eraser. But on a piece of paper that one of the guards slipped to her were actually the words that he had written containing this truth. Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because of my belief in Christ. 
the resurrection was the greatest truth, the greatest positive in the universe because through the resurrection, God brought everything into being. Each year we celebrate the resurrection as we do each and every Sunday actually because resurrection is all about new creation. If you think about it, it's the beginning of our individual histories if we become Christians. For the past three weeks, we've examined the four basic Christian relationships as Paul expounded them in Romans 12. Namely, our relationship to God in verses 1 and 2, to ourselves in 3 to 8, to one another in 9 to 16, and then to our enemies in 7 to 21. Now, in Romans 13... Paul's going to develop three more relationships. And today we're just going to look at the first of those. Our relationship to the state in terms of conscientious citizenship. Before we begin that though, there's another important consideration that I think we really need to address. An issue that pertains to the authority of the state which I believe is brought into the light by seeing the relationship that exists between Romans 13 and Revelation 13. And as we begin to read Romans 13, you're going to hear Paul express how the state is a divine institution with divine authority and the Christians are not to be anarchists or subversives. Listen to me. We need to be cautious, however, in our interpretation and our proclamation of Paul's statements. Because here is the image that I want you to keep in mind. Because when we come to the book of Revelation, the government is described as a beast in chapter 13. Aligned with the devil, who in chapter 12 is depicted as a dragon. When Paul says in Romans 13, or excuse me, what he says in Romans 13, cannot be taken to mean that individual rulers, that all the Caligulas, the Herods, the Neros, the Domitians of the New Testament times, that all of the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Amins, the Sodoms, or even the Trumps, Bidens, and Obamas of our times. Individual leaders were not personally appointed by God. We can't say that God is responsible for their behavior or that their authority is in no, under no circumstances to be resisted. Paul means rather that the principle of government, the principle of governing authorities is derived from God's authority. So that we can say to individual leaders exactly what Pilate, Jesus said to Pilate. You would have no power. You would have no authority over me if it weren't given to you from above. And Pilate misused his authority to condemn and have Jesus crucified. Nevertheless, the authority he used to do this had been delegated to him as a representative of the governing authority. That is in fact ordained. The principle I think is really clear. 
We have to submit as Christians right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the commands, but if the state commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. Always remember the big context is the New Testament. And that literally decades passed between the writing of Paul's letters and the, and, and the Gospels and the book of Revelation. And so when John writes Revelation 13, some 30 years have elapsed since Romans was written, and the systematic persecution of Christians had begun under Domitian. Now the state is no longer seen as a servant of God wielding his authority, but as an ally of the devil who has given his authority to the persecuting state, pictured, as I said, as a monster that emerges out of the chaos of the sea. So, as we get into the Word today, remember that we are to submit to the state's God-given authority, but it has been given for particular and not for a totalitarian purpose. The gospel is just as equally hostile to tyranny and anarchy. So, God's reading of His Word. Let everybody be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And by the way, Paul did resist, and he did incur judgment, and he accepted it. He was beheaded outside of Rome. For rulers are not a terror to do to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger of who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. A relationship between church and state has been notoriously controversial all throughout the Christian centuries. To oversimplify, there are four main models that have been put out there. Erastus, for instance, believed that the church was to, or excuse me, the state was to have total control of the church. Second, there is the approach known as theocracy, in which the church controls the state. A third approach was that of Constantine, the emperor, who thought, saw a compromise between 
the state and the church in that the church favors the excuse me the state favors the church and the church is to accommodate the state in order to retain its favor and then the fourth is a partnership a partnership in which the church and the state recognize and encourage each other's distinct God-given responsibilities in a spirit of constructive uh, collaboration. Now, this might be what Paul has in mind. Many say that. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not. That there's a fifth approach that seems to accord better with Paul's overall approach and his teaching. And that is the church is to be the transformer of culture. To be the witness. And to be the witness by living a cross-shaped life. But in doing so, we need to remember the words of Jesus. During one of the trials that would result in his crucifixion, when Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responded, My kingdom is not of this world. In fact, Jesus went on to say, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now, while it's true that the full realization of the heavenly kingdom will come with the second coming, notice I'm being very, very particular because as I've shared with you, I am not one who believes in the so-called rapture. I believe the next time Christ comes back, it's going to be the day of judgment, the second coming. And I believe that the full realization of the kingdom won't happen until that time. But it is no less true that those who are in Christ, whose life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3, who are crucified with Christ and live their present life by faith in Him, Galatians 2, are now members of the heavenly commonwealth, the kingdom of heaven. And we live an act under its laws. And so that, that's why Paul would write to the Christians at Philippi. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to, upset, to subject all things to Himself. <coughs> now you probably read right through and over an important path verse and wording in that verse of me. Because I did for many years. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we wait. Present tense. We are already citizens of a kingdom that has right now as its basis heaven, the throne. Our allegiance, our citizenship is to be rendered to the kingdom that is based in heaven, not the kingdom that is here on earth. And the kingdom of God is to... Uh, it's from the kingdom of God that we should be receiving our impulses to action and our guidelines to our conduct. 
Now, I don't have a problem with that because I don't know of any laws that keep me from living the Christian life the way that my Bible tells me I should be living it. But I will tell you this. If there is an act of the law that contradicts what this Word says, and it's happened already across the border in Canada, it has been challenged already in some areas in the United States, if there is ever a law enacted that tells me that I cannot preach something out of this book that's plainly written, plainly interpreted, I will be the first to be willing to go to jail as a violator of that law. Our connection is the basis of our life of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. We're going to see that when we come to chapter 14. As distinguished from a life of belly worship and worldliness. Paul makes it clear that the state's authority is with a view to ministry. And so he can conclude the last half of the first paragraph, verses 4 to 7, with the admonition that we are to pay all what is owed to them. Yes. He begins by saying, taxes to whom taxes are owed, and revenue to whom revenue is owed, and, as my daughter corrected me, because all of my life I've blamed April the 15th, she said this year it's the 18th. Which means instead of on the 15th, uh, I'll be doing my taxes on the 18th. <laughs> I, I never get them done ahead of time. But anyway, pay taxes. Pay the revenue that's owed. But did you also notice that he continues by saying, pay respect to whom respect is owed. Pay honor to whom honor is owed. There is a dearth of that in our nation right now. We have a deluge of disrespect. A lack of showing honor to people who have earned honor. I think it's a travesty. I don't know about you, but I hear in this the words of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record. It's a question regarding loyalty and allegiance that was raised. It was a question asking about the merging and the clashing of kingdoms. Jesus was asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They were trying to trick him. Hey Jesus, are you going to side with who are you going to side with? You're going to side with the Sadducees who are bowing to the Romans? You're going to side with the Zealots who are constantly fighting against the Romans? <clears throat> Jesus hit them where, where it hurts. He asked them for a denarius. Now go back and check the context. This was all taking place in the greater property of the temple. And you are not to have a graven image in the temple. So Jesus said, somebody give me a denarius. 
And the person gave him one, and that person was guilty of violating the law of not having a graven image because Jesus asked asked them, whose image, whose icon is on this denarius? And when they responded, Caesar's, Jesus responded by saying, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God that's the, thing, the things that are God. In other words, pay to all what is owed to them. Now, what does Genesis say about our creation? What are we stamped with? He created them male and female. He created them in the image of God. Same word in the Septuagint that Jesus says here. And so what He's saying is, we are created in the image of God, so regardless of the fact that we might owe taxes and revenue to the state, our allegiance, our loyalty is to be to God first and foremost. The church and the state have different roles. And Christians have duties to both God and state. And that's clearly implied in Jesus' epigram. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Now Paul enlarges on the state's God-appointed role and on the role of Christian people in relation to it. Although his emphasis is on personal citizenship rather than on any particular theory of church and state relations. The requirements of submission and the warning of rebellion given by Paul are couched in universal terms. And for this reason, they have constantly been misapplied by oppressive right-wing regimes as if Scripture gave rulers carte blanche authority to develop a tyranny and demand unconditional obedience. And when the state doesn't perform its God-given role, the kingdoms clash. Now, if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian as our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. As Peter and the other apostles put it to the Sanhedrin themselves, we must obey God rather than men. So whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's laws, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Now today is Resurrection Sunday. And it's important for us to remember, even to emphasize, that the resurrection was and is the ultimate victory of good over evil. The resurrection confirms that in the clashing of the kingdoms, the kingdom of God will be victorious over all other kingdoms. As Jesus was beginning the Sermon on the Mount, He would remind His disciples and His hearers that persecution is the sign of of blessed and or victorious living. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
it's hard to talk about the empty tomb without talking about the cross. The death, burial, and resurrection are spoken of together throughout Scripture. And though the reference was to the cross, Jesus did speak of the victory obtained by means of His persecution when He said, And as Moses is lifted, was lifted up, lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Paul Chapel once said, because of the empty tomb, we have peace. Because of His resurrection, we can have peace during even the most troubling of times because we know He is in control, ultimately, of all that happens. So it is that Paul could write to the Christians at Corinth. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is not sting in death for me. I'm not afraid of dying. I grieve when some who I love die because of their being missed, their passing. But when I know they are Christian, as in my mom, when they called me at four in the morning and I knew the life she had lived, my wife said, are you okay? And I said, I'm better. Because I knew my mom wasn't suffering anymore. I'm not afraid to die because I've already died. I've already died and I've risen. We saw that back in Romans 6. Don't you know, Paul said, that when you were baptized, you were baptized into His death, and just as you were baptized into His death, you are going to be raised in His resurrection. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we're baptized into Christ, we die to the sinful self, we bury it in the watery grave of baptism to rise to walk in a newness of life. You know, the early Christian, they had heresies around this just like they had heresies around everything. There were some people who were taking the newness of life to such an extent that after they became Christians and they got baptized, they started walking away from their families. I'm a new person. I'm not married to her anymore. Or I'm not married to him anymore. That leads me to my challenge. 
My challenge for this week is to try to understand the full impact, the power of the resurrection, the power it has upon our lives. When Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, he wasn't talking about lifting 500 pounds. He wasn't talking about running a mile in three minutes. He basically wasn't even talking about anything that was physical. He was talking about his spiritual ability, especially his ability to be content in whatever circumstances that he might find himself. Whether having a lot or having nothing. That's why Paul could continue. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor's not in vain, because he knew, he knew he had a Savior who lives. He was confronted by him on the road to Damascus. He refers to it as one of the Lord's resurrection appearances. You see, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone because I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. We're going to stand in just a minute to sing that hymn. But I'm getting old. I'm not sending it yet. That's tomorrow. But Wanda, I simply moved right on to the end of the prayer and didn't even remember that I had promised you that I would come back here. And when I started talking about standing, I thought about you standing and walking in pain. So church, pray with me. Father, help us to live in the power of the resurrection. And Father, this morning I pray that you will give Wanda relief from the pain that she is experiencing. And somehow one of these doctors, plural, that she's been seeing will find out what's causing it and how to bring her relief. That it'll be done in such a way that only you can receive the glory. That they'll sit back and say, I don't know how that happened. Help her so that she can have a smile on her face and a message to give when she sees others about your great love for her. Be with us as a church. Be with us as we stand and proclaim that He lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's say.
Ryan saves when Tyson came back, but as long as he didn't, I said, Jesse probably keeps them. She tries to keep all the little kids. That's why any of you that want your child watched, don't have to take a call. I would rather they, she watch them on an occasional basis than her to get some desire to have another one. <laughs> Anything in Two quick announcements. Rich's birthday party is Saturday. If you do not have an official invite, I have them with me right here. If you want to come, please come. You're all invited. Did I say one o'clock? One o'clock? Uh, I think I said one o'clock. And then two weeks from today, right after church, is the preschool's spaghetti fundraiser lunch. And all the money that comes in for this lunch will go directly into the one, two, three preschool mm -hmm. camp. The, or donations, money, whatever you bring. Yep. All right. Jake. So real quick, we have found out that Goodland lately has been losing a lot of structures, being knocked down, condemned. And we found out recently that Bishop Doherty with the Catholic Church has decided that once Remington is remodeled and completed, they want to knock down their church. The good Yeah, Remington was remodeled. We're going to knock down the new one. Yes. So we're asking, it's a beautiful historic building, 121 years old and in outstanding condition. No reason to be knocked down. And whether or not. The, uh, the Catholic Church wants to use it as a church anymore. If they have the membership to support it, we don't know. But we don't want to see another parking lot where a big, beautiful building used to sit. Yeah. So we're asking anyone who would like to would sign this uh, petition. That'll be given. Okay. Sure. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Well, God bless you. Y'all have a good week this week. If you're free this afternoon at 1.30, come join us. Uh, so we, as we bring up worship service. Uh, I was really disappointed. I had been told that last Sunday was covered. And I had told Teresa, if it, something happens, call me, even if it's at the last minute. And uh, we... Had a miscommunication apparently, yeah. and I never got called. They they admit they never tried, but they didn't have worship last night. Yeah. And I told them I'll come every single Sunday. My wife doesn't like to hear that, but uh, <laughs> I told them I'll come every single Sunday. Uh, and you know, if I have to be gone, then you can just fill in once in a while that way, because that's a, a ministry that's very important to me. I grew up with that. My dad gave his life just to remember the old boy. And uh, so, uh, but this afternoon at 1.30, we're going there for worship. So come if you're not doing anything. All right? We're going to sing our closing chorus and be dismissed.